We have a very special episode for you today. After beating Everton and Charlton to extend the winning run to eight in a row, Kate and I felt it would be a good time to contextualize United's progress as a team. So, we brought on the two best people we could think of to help us do that, the wonderful Maram Albaharna and John McKenzie. Case, you've been inactive on Twitter as of late. Has it made your life as much better as I can imagine it might? More, more. The thing about being terminally online is that it's terminal. And so getting off even for like a week makes such a huge difference. (laughs) It's been the most productive week of my life. I don't buy it. But we don't really have time to discuss that as our main topic for today. So instead, I'm going to welcome some of our guests. Firstly, Maram. Maram is probably best known for her time at The Athletic, but initially exploded as one of the most prolific data-driven content creators in the United Twitter space. I'm sure most people listening are familiar with Maram, but in the rare case that you're not, I highly recommend checking out Maram's work because it's an inspiration to, I think, a lot of public work in the analytics community today. Maram is also a friend of all of ours. So, Maram, how are you today? We're really happy to have you on. I'm good. I'm I'm good. I'm really tired, but I'm here for you, for you guys. So, yay. <laughs> We're happy you're here. And speaking of tired, we have the man who must be more tired than anyone else on the planet. It's John McKenzie. You're all familiar yeah, with John yeah, because yeah. he was on... <laughs> you're all familiar with John. He was on episode 13, which we reference pretty much every single week. But since he's carrying the entire football content sphere every week, we thought we'd ask him to carry us this week. John, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. I would ask that people stop sending me clips of Casemiro kicking a football and also sending me the result of the Manchester City game tonight. Uh, I would like to point out that Rodri did not, in fact, start that game that Manchester City lost in the Carabao Cup. So, uh, but apart Wait, from that, you're talking really well. about Rodri? I thought you meant Phillips <laughs> as, a, as the Leeds fan that you are. That's right. Yeah. Uh, no, Rodri is the best. <laughs> The best pivot defensive midfielder in the world right now, and I'm shameless in my love of him. All right. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> you'll have to put that on hold for an hour because this is not a Rodri podcast. This is not Rodri in the details. This is Devils in the details. And a lot of the discourse lately has been about the Devils' eight-match winning run, which has led to a lot of the Casemiro praise that we were just talking about. And given the magnitude and significance of this run, we wanted to talk about just how significant it is. In other words, United have been tested in some areas, United have not been tested in some other areas. And I think that's what we should talk about today. So, I'm going to go to Case first. Case, we've talked about this the last few weeks in the pod. What have United been successful in doing during this six-match post-World Cup winning streak? Um, What has defined that and what are maybe some of the barriers that we're seeing that maybe haven't been tested so much? Sure, yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a long list. I think United have played well during this run, broadly. Um, it's been one of, certainly been the best run since uh, the start of last season. I think it's been one of the best runs, sort of regardless, going back many, many years. In terms of what we've been good at, we started scoring from set pieces, which I think is huge. It was a big part of our ability to win matches against you know, what, what's been broadly lower quality opposition uh, that have sat in on us. Another thing, I think the press is starting to come together. Uh, it's been bumpier more recently, but uh, we're starting to sort of see an ability to consistently outshoot other teams as a product of our ability to consistently keep the ball in the other team's half, which sounds simple, but is actually a huge step forward from the last five years of Manchester United. This is a great answer. So, you know, the three main things that I think Case brought up there, and I think that is a really nice segment into three parts, is breaking down opposition defenses, which has been the main part of the last six matches. United have played inferior opposition. is kind of split into three different categories uh, that Case addressed there. Number one being winning the ball back consistently, because that's what leads to having the ball and having the ball in good areas against unsettled defenses. Number two is getting to the final third consistently, which is build up, um, being able to play through the opposition. 
And number three is sustainable creation of chances. And I think that creates a good framework for us to, from there, sort of evaluate how much better United have gotten in each of those areas. So let's start with the press, right? John, you were last on a couple weeks ago. Uh, We talked about United's hybrid press, right? And to recap for anyone who missed that episode, first of all, stream that episode. I think it's one of our best. Secondly, the main idea being that United sort of hedge their bets in this hybrid press where the attack take a man-oriented approach, that's the front three, take a man-oriented approach of marking usually an opposition back four, and then other key features being, uh, you know, aggressive uh, pressing against, I think, playing the opposition playing into midfield, but conservative pressing in wide areas where, um, you know, if the front three are broken in the hybrid press, it's pretty easy to play through United at that point. One discussion we were having before the podcast was, you know, about intent here. So, you know, the ball is played into wide areas from the goalkeeper. It's pretty easy to break United's press. Now, to what extent do we think that that is something that is deliberate versus something that is not deliberate and United are failing to execute at? I think the reason, let's be entirely candid with the listeners here. I think the reason we brought this up is because there's some disagreement or at least some vagueness on this issue. Because we're outsiders, we don't know what's going on in you know team talks uh, on the training pitch. <clears throat> when United do this hybrid press, you have the three forwards typically marking four defenders, right? Which necessarily means that you're going to be leaving one of the defenders to be marked by either someone in midfield, someone in defense, or unmarked altogether. Um, and, and overwhelmingly, what it looks like has been happening is one of these defenders is being left unmarked entirely. And specifically, this is usually one, this is one of the fullbacks of the opposition. And so the question here is, typically how, how most other top sides would deal with this is one of their fullbacks would come forward and mark the other and go fullback to fullback. But we're not doing that. And I think we've built up enough of a sample at this point to say that that's on purpose. And so the question here. And I, I don't think I want to be the first person to answer it because I think I'm, yeah, I'd, I'd rather not be the first person to answer it. But I think the question here is, is that A, is that on purpose? B, if that's on purpose, is that a long-term plan or a short, short-term hedging of bets? And C, if that is on purpose, is somebody failing to execute that isn't the fullback? Uh, maybe to start off with, I would zoom out and look at the big picture as an outsider looking in at Eric Ten Hag's time at Manchester United, I would say that the big difference that he's made is obviously been a game changer. I think it's clear at this point now that he's been the best coach for the club since Alex Ferguson was there um, and has quote unquote solved a lot of the, the baseline issues that face any coach going in at, at a big club, faced any, uh, the problems that are faced by a coach coming into like that sort of dynastic situation where there's all of these um, structural problems etc what he's come in and done for me is he has got to a point where the team are um, solid and I think that's super important for a number of reasons but and what I mean by solid is is that there's a baseline there that you can work from that is going to give you it's going to get the fans on side it's going to get the the board on side it's going to get the players on side you're putting in the performances and res- getting the results that you need in order to have the coach just accepted as the coach. There's no one out there right now saying, should Eric Ten Hag be coaching Manchester United? That's now a given. And I think the way that he's done that has been that that trajectory that we've talked about from the beginning, right? Start out trying to maybe build up from the back, realizing that it's not going to work with the personnel that you've got. And so developing this sort of system, which is solid enough that allows you to play to your upsides and mitigates your downsides. So I would say that's the that's the context within which we have to think about what is happening with the press. My answer to question C, is that a long-term thing? I would suggest probably not a long-term thing because it, it strikes me as being a situation that you're going to set up if you're not going to want your fullbacks to commit too far forward uh, out of possession. Now, I think that does raise other questions, the most important being what's the point of having such an aggressive high press if you're going to give oppositions an out ball to, 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 to play in those situations? Um, but I, I think then that answers question A, which is, is this intentional as yes as well? I think this is an intentional thing uh, that is being done 
in order to give an, an advantage. Um, and that advantage, I think, is a concern to push your fullbacks too far up the pitch. And also, in answer to the question that I posed, I think the reason why you want to be aggressive is because you don't want to give up any space in the central areas. Um, so for the most part, what I see Manchester United doing out of possession is an aggressive press against the back line, forcing the ball one way or the other, particularly against a back four. Um, and I, again, I, I want to admit that I haven't watched a huge amount of Manchester United recently. Uh, but when we talked about the hybrid press, most of that was happening against a back three. Uh, and the reason why I would call that a hybrid press is because you then have to start making decisions where players are covering more than one player in particular. Um, so I, I think against a back four, Manchester United are pretty repeatable compared to other teams they're doing the same sorts of things that other teams are doing they're going to split the yeah. two center backs with the center forward force the ball onto one side of the pitch and then they're going to go as much as they can player for player with the exception of that fullback um to try and make it hard for the opposition to build up um yeah and- yeah sorry so let's just be super clear here um we had john on it was around the time united were had played spurs and chelsea two teams that play back three um and the difference being, so we talked about how three men mark a back four. When it's a back three, it's pretty much player for player with the center backs, and the wing backs are left almost entirely free. It may it may be kind of um it may sound like it's coming from the perspective of like this becomes more problematic when it's a back four than a back three, but I think it's actually the other way around. This is more a setup designed to play against back fours. Yeah. Um, that is easier to play through when United face a back three. Sorry, John, you can go Yeah, on. and the idea then, I, I suppose, is that the wide players are sort of hybrid, right, between the centre-back and the, the full-back. And you want to see situations where the wide player is making that decision when to jump one player, when to jump the other. Uh, and I think that there's some players who are good at it, and I think there's other players who aren't. I think Anthony is very good out of possession. I think Marcus Rashford less so on the on the other side. Uh, and I think a lot of teams have recognised that, so you'll see a lot of teams building up against the Manchester United left-hand side. Um, so the, the I, I realise that I've rambled a bit here, but the, the, the point that I'm making is what, why... If we're assuming that this is an intentional leaving of, of weaknesses in the wide areas, and if you look in the central spaces in particular, a lot of the hybridity is designed to make sure that Manchester United are not weak in the middle. Why might it be the case that Manchester United or Eric Ten Hag is happy to allow those weaknesses in the wide areas um, versus the the central spaces? Uh, and do we? I, I, yeah, again, I think we we're, we're probably all going to agree that the. The upside that you get from that is that you don't give up space in in behind your fullbacks. What you do give up is space in front of the fullbacks, which then allows the opposition to progress the ball. So I, that's the state of affairs as I see it. I think it's a it's a it's an intentional thing because Eric Ten Hag wants to allow weaknesses in a very specific space. Um, I don't think it's going to be a long-term thing because I think that there's going to be a point at which you're not going to want to allow teams to be able to progress the ball so easily. And that was the issue against Chelsea. Um, Azpilicueta was getting the ball dead easy against the Manchester United high press. Now, they were lucky because he was pretty poor at at making the most of that progression, but it was there. And there's going to be teams that you're coming up against who are going to cause a lot of problems in those areas. So this is where I'm going to jump in. This is where I think we were about to disagree before we went on air which is, I totally agree, A, that it's intentional that we're doing this, B, that it's suboptimal to just be allowing this. this the last point that where I think we may differ, I don't think we actually got to discuss it yet, is I don't think the way we're executing it right now is correct. Like, I don't think we are executing this hedged version of a press as well as we're supposed to be executing it because there is no there are two or three moves in every match even though we've been playing well where that lobbed ball gets to the fullback and we're fully in transition defense from a goal kick which i i can't imagine that's the plan my theory is that the wingers and it's typically the left winger because anthony is that really doesn't have a problem with this whether it's garnacho or rashford or whoever's out on the left way over commits on their center back and leaves the fullback in way too much space and then has to do a long sprint where they're not going to be able to catch up. And yeah, I mean, it causes us to pull midfielders out. It puts Casemiro in a spot, in a spot where he has to do like a ton of wiping up, which 
honestly, especially in the Everton match, I don't think he did very well. I think he was responsible for both of the big chances that we gave up because he got put in this situation where he had to mop up and he did not mop up well. Um, and, and that's just, that's just, that's what's going to happen when you allow this. So I cannot imagine that the plan is to allow those kinds of progressions every once in a while. To, to maybe play to your point a little bit there, I do think Rashford was very fullback oriented against Everton, almost allowing the pass to go to the center back, uh, at least in the first half. Um, and I think that could be a response to the fact that a Pickford is probably better on the ball than the average Premier League goalkeeper, probably pretty good at being able to pick out the fullback. Um, and B, like you said, the fact that usually they're overcommitting on the center backs, and this could therefore be like a compensative instruction to be less uh, oriented to the center backs. Yeah, and I think that that's the that's the gamble, right? You're 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 saying that you want your your wide player to be covering the fullback and the center back, but I'm ne- I can't think of any team in the world right now who is pressing in that way i can't think of any team in the world who allows that space to the fullback who when the ball is then played doesn't immediately trigger a jump from the 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 out of possession team's fullback and Um, the thing is sometimes it does but way too late which honestly to me seems worse than it not triggering it at all but neither condition works like they're both bad one is just a lot worse, but also is a step back that allows you to take two steps forward once you get it right. So yeah, I think that's what the interesting question is here. And I'm pretty sure we're going to get slaughtered on this by City at the weekend because I'm I'm pretty confident that A, Pep will see this and B, they have the players to exploit it. I, I mean, <laughs> if there's any team in the world that has the players to exploit it, it's, it's City. Okay, I think at that point, we're going to let it play out a little bit because we are 17 minutes deep on yeah. pressing. Um, to finish this section off, I'm just going to go to, we started off with the, with the sort of, have United gotten better or is it situational? I think we've discussed the situational component here, which is the fact that a fullback is left open has not been something that United have paid for in the press thus far. Case, in a quick, like, one sentence or two sentences, how have United gotten better in the press so far, if they have? Do you mean since the Spurs and Chelsea matches or just yes. in general? Yes. Since the since the World Cup in particular. Um, I'm not sure United have gotten better in that respect since the Spurs and Chelsea matches. I think the opposition's just been worse and you've and we were already at a good level against Spurs and Chelsea in a lot of respects. And so if you play at a decent level with your press against opposition that don't really have good attacking players, which is the case in these recent fixtures, you're not going to give up a lot of goals. And, that, and that's what's happened. I, I'm not sure there's been a substantive improvement, which I don't know. I, I'm okay right now with flatlining in that respect, because just like 10 straight games where we press well, that, that's the first time that's happened since like 2015, maybe. Yeah, I agree. And for what it's worth, I do think a lot of improvement happened in the previous window, which we've been able to discuss before. And is also why I want to move a little bit more to what's actually happening in possession. Um, So I'm going to go to Moram for this. Moram, your threads about a year ago on Solskjaer's uh, team building up from the back went absolutely viral. We've now watched about six months of Ten Hag's side building out of the back. How do you think Ten Hag has addressed improving this? Um, I think a good starting point might be the fact that we've talked about how United have sort of two different ways of playing from the back. Number one being just going long in situations where they're pressed high. That hasn't come up that much since the World Cup. So I'm talking more specifically about the other method, which is actually trying to play out of the back by getting the ball to the center backs and trying to play in the midfield. How do you think United have done well in that area and, and versus badly? First, initially, I have to take a like perspective of the team that Ten Hag inherited in the beginning. And let's talk a little bit about personnel. So if you really want to build a system that successfully builds out of the back, regardless of whether you have a high press or a mid block, um, you want to be able to have... You want to be able to have two things with your players. You A, want to give them... 
um, a sort of, I would say, play-by-play. For example, when the ball gets to here, you pass it to the, for example, fullback, and then that's your out. But then you also want to give them like autonomy in their decision-making. And I think some players are good enough on the ball, like Martinez, um, to be able to trust them with half and half in terms of the decisions that they can make and the coaching that comes into it. But then with other players, you can't. Um, and I think um, one of the biggest examples one of the biggest examples is De Gea, to be honest. So I think he's, we saw the first three games, especially Brentford. De Gea can't really play out of the back. But to be honest, I'm going to give him some credit here, which is very rare. But um, it is not... And like United still can't... I don't think they can still build... They still build out the back well. I don't think they can, they can, they're doing it as well as they can with better personnel because it's not entirely just the goalkeeper. It's also... I think with better midfield um, comes a better like um, better solutions on how to advance. So first, I think the whole going long thing was just a very let's avoid De Gea trying to hold on to the ball too much. And I think sometimes we miss opportunities because of that, because um, there's a lot of times where you have like fullbacks that have an, a very easy now. We can create a very quick transition, especially like Luke Shaw, but he doesn't see the pass or... He sees it and he's too afraid to play it or he hesitates and it takes too long. So you're better off kind of going long. But then the disadvantage of that is that the opposition just get the ball back, which is why I've enjoyed our press a bit more, not since Chelsea and Spurs, but overall, I think, um, these past couple of months. Um, because I think it, it makes the best out of the situation you have rather than the best overall. I think... I think this is just the beginning for United in terms of how they their moves. So that's my first bit of my answer. But um, I think the second bit is um, I think United in possession are able to progress the ball um, in situations I haven't seen them do before. And what I mean by that um, exactly is I think we've become slightly a bit more versatile in terms of Actually, let me change my answer. I want to say we've we've become slightly more repeatable, not versatile. I think across, take any like a string of games, let's say a string of 10 games from the last couple of seasons, I think you would struggle to see some sort of pattern or something that's been repeated and grinded down. Whereas here, I can kind of see things that are like, for example, when Marcus Rashford makes a for example, layoff, he immediately knows to run and he immediately knows that the player is going to give him the ball, which is something that should be done and like, you know, but at this stage, um, I think players are beginning to understand where they should be in position and position tangents of the side is much better. The summary is, I think before the United's best was transitional and I think we all know this and I think the way that we approached building out of the back was trying to manufacture those transitional moments as best as we could rather than take advantage of the opposition. Um, and I think sometimes that also left us vulnerable as a result. Um, and I think we depended too much on certain players to do certain things. And when they didn't, the, the, sorry, like the entire building would collapse, I would say. We are better. Um, I don't think we are as good as we can be. Um, but I, I think... As we said before, I think we've benefited from the fact that the opposition um, hasn't uh, um, been as incisive or effective as it could have been against us. Um, and that works for in possession as well. Um, to take a very basic example, I think um, I think Charlton, I think Charlton tried, attempted a couple of like high presses against us. And with a better side, I think they could have taken advantage. I think sometimes we just don't play quickly as we can. There's a lot of spells where we go a bit slow and it's just like, move. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but I would love to know your thoughts about it. You mentioned repeatability. And more specifically, you mentioned, like, for instance, if Rashford gets the ball, um, he lays it off. That person knows how to play him in or when to play him in etc. Um, I think a big part of that <clears throat> is if you go back to Solskjaer, there was this big emphasis or at least discussion of, I'm not even sure it was actually that big of a talking point in on the training ground, but there was this big 
emphasis amongst yes in the dialogue about United being fluid positionally because there weren't like strict positional roles, especially in the front three. You heard you heard you know fluid front three was like a buzzword, um, but for the most part, I think that was sort of just cutting them loose, which has its own. There are some positive effects to that. You know, if there's less predictability, it's harder to mark players. But for the most part, I think what you wound up with was a lot of aimless wandering from Bruno, from the front three, and even from, like, you know, our eights, who now one of them is Ericsson, who plays more like a 10 in a lot of instances, partially because we've gotten better out of possession, which lets us have the ball more. Um, So I think a big part of what you're talking about there is players... It's not just about patterns being repeated, but it's about, you know, when Rashford gets the ball on the left wing, certain players, and it's always the same players, are in certain spots. And that allows you to, we we can go into, I forget what the exact word is, socio-effective links between players. Um, I think you're starting to see, and essentially that's just a fancy word for players having working relationships where they know how their teammates are going to behave around them. And I think a big part of the rotations has been strengthening those socio-effective relationships. Um, I used to say the same thing. I used to be guilty of saying the same thing with United previously, that how their front three was dynamic and fluid. It meant that they could like switch flanks and all of that fun stuff. But I think it was only effective to a certain point in a way that it is more now because the way that United go forward and um, try to threaten the opposition seems to come with more intent and aim. Um, you don't really see much of Bruno going from the halfway line into the box and then going somewhere else. Whereas it, it feels more like, you know, like a dress rehearsal. Everybody kind of knows where they're going to go when um, a certain player picks up the ball in a certain position. And um, so I, I, I would call that fluidity um, much better, even though it comes with a certain, a bit of, positional discipline because on the other hand if you have fluidity with cutting them loose most often players will end up making the 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 decision that they think individually is best but actually would hurt the team Rashford would think I will run into a lot of these players and maybe maybe I can dribble and score but most likely not and then that leads to the the ball being lost and most likely a transition or Bruno just, you know, hero balls it and... Uh, at the risk of being parodic, um, I've been working on a script based around rest defence at the moment. And I think what I've found really interesting at the moment is how much everyone just wants to talk about in-possession play all the time, right? And it's all about, oh, which teams are the most creative in possession? But the, the whole elephant in the room with all of this stuff is that the majority of these elite coaches, so coaches like Pep Guardiola, coaches like Julian Nagelsmann, coaches like Eric Ten Hag, who, by the way, talks about rest defence a lot compared to most other managers in the world. Their structures in attack are as much about their concern to be in a good defensive structure if they lose the ball. And uh, again, well, there's, we, everyone knows all of these debates that people are having at the moment about positional play versus a positional play or whatever you want to to, to talk about. Um but I think the thing with Eric Ten Hag is always going to be that his attacking structure is always going to have that shadow side, that that opposite side of the same coin, which is we attack with these sorts of structures because precisely if we do lose the ball, we need to be in the best position to defend as well. So it's I think it's just worth keeping that at the back of, of, of our minds when we think about like Manchester United are now much more structural in their attacking, but also as a result, they are also more structural in the turnover moments, right? Directly to your point, I, this is, I think, a great way for listeners to visualize this. A big thing that we've made a big deal out of has been, this season, has been the fullbacks inverting. I think a lot of people look at that as being an in-possession thing, about it being, you know, you have an extra man in midfield, you can go direct from the center backs to the wingers and exploit width, some of which is true. I think in particular, it does create those certain advantages, allowing the center backs to go directly to the wingers. But primarily, the reason you do that is so you can push your midfielders forward, in particular Ericsson for us, and in some instances Casemiro. Casemiro scored some, had some major, some 
some important assists, scored some important goals, though I think they've both been from set pieces. And the reason you can do that is because of seemingly offensive, but honest, but in reality, defensive positioning of the fullbacks in possession. Okay, so I was going to prompt that, actually, and I'm glad you said it. Well, I, um, you know, our relationship's just becoming so strong. Oh, no, you guys are one Listen, we have I coached... Tell. This is about us having coached patterns in exactly. recording every week. <laughs> no, okay. So... The first, I have two things here. Number one is sort of the evolution of this. So we talked earlier about how an evolution of the press might be to improve the coordination between the winger and the fullback. I think that's also true in possession. I think Ten Hag's Ajax sides were known for not only having the fullbacks in midfield a lot, but also having the fullbacks available in the final third and out wide a lot. And I think that's something that Shaw and to an even greater extent, Dalo, are not quite at the same level yet in terms of where they are at different points in time. Do you think that's, and I'm going to go to Maram because she's so excited right now. Do you think that's something that we're going to want to see in the near future in terms of getting United into a better attacking form while also maintaining rest defense in terms of coach movements to allow for that? Um, I want to begin my answer saying, um, so, but whether of can they, but should they? And to be honest, they should, because um, when you look at how United go forward, how they create their chances, um, there there is interchangeability and rotations that come from, for example, uh, Dalo underlapping and going to the half spaces and you know interchanging there. But I think the symptom of a, I wouldn't say a problem, but a small issue is, is that United's forwards don't even tend to play. And particularly, I would say Rashford don't even tend to play fullbacks when they're overlapping or when they're in good positions. When they're overlapping and they're in, in space to be able to create a cross or, for example, a cutback. And I think that harms much more than people think they do because it's not just the ability to recognize the pass, but the ability to make it as well. It's two pronged. You know, you need to be able to have forwards that have a good in- understanding of when to make the pass and. To recognize, for example, when for example when Luke Shaw is overlapping, is it best to run into the box or should I give him the ball? And I think a lot of the times Marcus Rashford chooses the option of I would run into the box, even when it's not beneficial. So I think for me, yes, that improves with personnel, but that also improves with time and with a better. So how you? I know it's really simple to say it like that. But I, I always find the, the better that you can defend, the better that you can attack. Um, because that means you're comfortable committing certain players forward because, for example, you know that they're going to recover and come back. Or you'll be able to go back into a structure um, where you can, for example, cut off a team's transition quite easily and quite quickly. So I would say the better and more comfortable that midfield looks and the better that defensive line looks, even the stuff that you're we talking about uh previously with how uh, United press, you can push your fullback forward equally with or without the ball. Yeah. So just to tie that all together for, you know, (laughs) for everyone, I think what Maram is touching upon is this is a similar idea of rest defense that John is talking about, where having better rest defense is not only a mechanism to prevent counterattacking and prevent transitions. And that's something that top coaches right now are super aware of. How can we continue to attack the opposition in settled possession situations in the opposition half without giving away a lot of chances in the moment that the ball is lost and the press is broken. Having a better platform is what's going to allow the fullbacks to become more involved in the attack. And then this also goes back to what Case and I were talking about last week, which is when Anthony is on the ball, what types of runs have to be made? It's not just a question of how can United become more effective against a low block in terms of breaking them down, which is what we're going to talk about next. But it's also a question of how can United do that while maintaining the measures that have been put into place uh, to ensure that they have security in the in the event that they lose the ball. Can I just jump in at this point? Because I wanted to say that like, the reason why I brought that up is because it feels to me like a lot of the the waiting behind Manchester United's structure is motivated by the defensive rather than the the attacking patterns. And I think this is because when I watch Manchester United play, I don't feel like they're building up like most other positional play type teams at the moment. And I think that's 
because you're in this sort of strange middle ground between being a team who are going to be better in transitional moments. So I, I think what's happened is, is that Ten Hag has set up a team which has got all of the 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 rest defensive security sorted out. Uh, but in terms of the actual possession side of things, you're not going to be able to build up as well in deeper areas of contested possession. And so you get a lot of the, the these weirdnesses of like, okay, Diogo Dallo moves into the central space. He barely stays there for very long because the game is so transitional that the ball has then moved into the into the opposition half or the final third, and then he pushes up into almost like a ten spot in those in those certain situations. And the the big question I have then is with Manchester United's possession play is tempo because at the moment they're playing like a slower tempo structure in a much higher tempo way, and I think that you can change that by changing personnel. But I think it's one of those things where, and this is what's so interesting about Manchester United, there's there's, there's so many areas where one little thing changes and everything becomes better, right? So a great example of that is David De Gea. Change David De Gea and then the question is like, what is the upside that you get on top of that? Um, and I think the same is going to be true for a lot of your build-up play. So you've got a lot of the structure there in terms of the defensive security, but the, the difference is, is that as soon as you bring in better players in the build-up phase, suddenly you're in a situation where you can be more patient, you can slow the tempo down, and suddenly the, then the question is going to be, what are the upsides going to look like? It's going to be small changes, bringing in certain players in certain positions, and then the question is like, what's the upside from here? So uh, when I watch Manchester United play, it's such a weird experience for me because I spend a lot of my professional life watching elite teams building up. And they, you know, you sort of watch build up phases and you know what they're doing and you're sort of like, this is how they can improve, blah, blah, blah. When I watch Manchester United, I'm like, okay, I understand what the structure's doing, but I don't see any of the actual good build up stuff a lot of the time. Um, and I, I'm really fascinated to see, like, with a couple of windows under his belt, what Eric Ten Hag does to change that. Um, I don't know if any of that made sense, but. I'm going to jump in on a bunch of stuff there. You're talking about building up there. You're talking about Tejea. Do you mean specifically first phase buildup, where Tejea has the ball, where the ball is going to be coming back to Tejea frequently, or do you mean in the opposition half? So I think maybe maybe more consolidated possession in the next phase from the first phase. I mean, but the, the problem is right is that you can't do the first phase stuff, the the unsettled possession stuff, because you don't want to rely on the hay, and so you're almost having to fudge some of the early phases in the build up, and so you're going into those like rest defense structures, i.e. You've got your two centre backs, and then like one of your full, maybe one of your full backs inverting alongside the defensive midfielder. Like it's a very, it's a very sort of we want to retain the ball in these sorts of areas, move it around structure, but you're not really using it for that kind of advantage. It's more just to be safe, as you said, in those, in those, in in the event that should the ball come back to you, you've got that that settled that that rest defence sorted out. Right. So to your point about. Um... You change one little thing and it could have a huge effect. Um, we haven't spoken about um, our newest transfer purchase yet. No, um, not yet. What I am going to say is I think two things. I agree with you about um, the rest defense structures being almost having very little to do with the build, actual build-up and more to do with hedging. I think having a big striker you can thump the ball to is a big part of how we're going to play in the near future. And what that allows is it allows you to change the behavior of almost everyone else on the pitch because you get so much more box presence from one player that you can create just as much threat without committing numbers in certain areas and allows you to commit numbers in different areas instead. Um, yeah. Okay. Before we get more into about Veghorst and the possibility of him joining United, um, I, I want to talk a little bit more about the struggles that United face in the final third breaking down teams. Um, and the first sort of John's least favorite I, I think topic it, you can see him disengaging yeah. <laughs> well so Waves I think there was some level of disagreement between the three of you 
um, at least from conversations we've had, about how much United's improvements, Marama's smiling really hard right now, um, about how some of United's improvements in breaking down teams are solely based on circumstances that they faced in matches um, versus how much they're down to improvements in either the personnel um, or more specifically sort of patterns of play uh, that are made to break down opposition in the final third. Um, Case and I last week talked about how game state and set pieces play a big part in this. Um, the fact that, you know, United have gotten a lot of early leads in maybe not necessarily lucky, but non, uh, open play situations have led to more positive performances against these blocks because the opposition have to make some attempt to get back into the game and that opens up space. Um, I'm more interested in what you think about United's ability to specifically improve breaking down opposition in you know a level game state where they are the team playing presumably an inferior side and they are the ones who have to break down the opposition um what are some areas you guys think united have improved versus not improved at all um in the last few matches first of all set pieces we got the breakthrough against charlton from just a screamer from Anthony, which you know what if you maintain the ball, keep the ball in the opposition half, and take a lot of shots, those things are going to happen, especially when you have players who are technically strong finishers like Anthony is, at least with his left foot. I don't really want to get into the politics of Anthony right now. Um, and then in other matches that came through set pieces, the only match where the breakthrough did not come through either a transition, a long shot, or a set piece, which I know I'm excluding a lot of goals here, was the Wolves match. Um, which brings us to Marcus Rashford, who we actually haven't talked about that much on the podcast recently, despite the fact that he's been in really, really, really good form. And so if you want to talk about improvement, um, I think the big question as for low, us beating block, low blocks going forward, one of the big questions is Rashford scored two goals against Wolves against, against completely settled defenses through A, really smart positioning, and then B, excellent te- technical execution and use of his body uh, to get a really good shot and then convert it, um, which is what elite forwards do in these matches. Um, if he could do that repeatedly, first of all, he one of the, those goals got disallowed, but it wasn't his fault. But if he can do that repeatedly, he'll be one of the best forwards in world football. The question is, how convinced are we that he's going to do that repeatedly? And <laughs> um. I think we were talking about this previously, how um, basically I was contemplating this um, these past couple of days, whether the Rashford that we've seen, we're seeing has been on, obviously, very incredible form. But is this the best of the current Rashford that we've known for years? Or is, is this a new Rashford that's adding more to his game? Um, and I think when you bring up that goal specifically, I feel like there are certain actions or even intense, that I haven't seen him attempt before um, or even succeed at. I think um, one of the biggest things that we've complained about for millions of times is that Rashford kind of has, like, terrible view when he's running with the ball. He kind of just has his eyes very much glued to his feet and not a lot of spatial awareness. And in addition to that, he also tends to hug the ball a bit too much where he when he can add value to running. But in the case of that goal against Wolves, I kind of saw him... So Rashford has always had a good build, a good physique, but I don't think he was the type of footballer that knew how to use it. Use it. At times, I think it kind of went against what he was trying to do. I think it kind of would say gave him sometimes of a disadvantage in terms of his agility. But I think he's finally learning how to actually create useful and purposeful movements off the ball whether that's repeatable is a different question and I think only time will tell to be honest but I do see some early signs of development and it's just his ability to basically like you know bully players off the ball in the box and basically at that time of the Wolves games uh the Wolf game he was able to, to deck that space where he can run into and that millisecond of looking up and realizing that there's space to run into changes, I would say the next 
minute or two minutes of the game because defenders immediately have to play catch-up. And the fullback at the time, even though it was in his line of sight and he could see him running, Rashford was basically able to, A, run into the blind side of the defenders and then also deal with a defender that has caught him by bullying him off. And I think I haven't seen him do something like that before. I think it was intelligent. And then finally, shot placement. Rashford is a type of player I've seen when it comes to goal, he likes to prefer power over placement. And it has done him disservice, I think, when he's close to scoring. And he tends to aim directly at the goalkeeper. And I think his recent finishing streak and his recent goals have come over this, I would say, new aura of calmness when he's in front of goal. It's not, I don't feel like he's agitated anymore. But again, that's just a vibe. I think for me, um, movement off the ball has always been an area that Rashford lacked. And I think it gives him opportunities once he improves that. It also gives him opportunities to challenge Arity for the ball. We've seen him score two-headed goals, two games in a row. I think if you told me that would happen last season, I would laugh at you. Um, so I think from there, um, you have something to work with. But it isn't the final product because he's still rough around the edges, I would say. So I agree with pretty much everything you said. Against Everton, I really like the play where he sort of fakes going in on his right foot and then pushes it out onto his left. And he continually does that until he generates enough space to just hit a ball with his left foot. And the ball wasn't even good, but because he created that space for himself and used what the defender was instructed or, or thought he would do against the defender, he created a goal because Cody put it into his own goal. Yeah, I think it's one of those it remains to be seen type of situations. Um, but we're running out of time and case implied that we were going to talk about this before. We are going to talk about it. Um, his face is orange with Dutch pride right now. Um, and so I'm going to, I'm going to turn to him and ask in terms of breaking down a defense, how do you think the prospective signing, not confirmed yet, not a done deal, the prospective signing of Veghorst improves United's ability to break down a defense. So I think this is like slightly more complicated than it would immediately appear because I don't think he's, he's not like a, he's not like Chris Wood, which is funny because I think you actually compared him to Chris Wood statistically on Twitter like a year ago. Um, And he is, there are certain similarities. They're obviously both huge people who play the same position but I'd say he's like yeah, I don't. I, I'm not holding you to that comparison. I'm only bringing it up just so I can draw a distinction. He's technically better than I think most players his, as big as he is. But I'd also say he's not as good uh, as like a target man, quote unquote, specifically body backing up into a center back and grappling. I'd say that isn't his strength. He would rather kind of drop off of those players a little bit. However, he's obviously a huge aerial threat in the box. So you still get that. You still get a player who really doesn't gravitate to the ball a ton in the final third, which I think is really good as it drags defenders around something. you Everyone's heard me rant about at this point. Um, just having a striker who wants to score goals but isn't so caught up in scoring pretty goals, I think that is really a meaningful thing, especially given the manager that we have, like John was talking about, I think a big part of uh, actually Nathan, uh, Nathan Clark, Nathan A. Clark on Twitter, if you go look at his account, he's tweeted about this in the past when it looked like Spurs uh, were going to get Tanakh. Um, and he talked about how a big part of how his teams play in the final third puts an emphasis on just pumping the ball at a tall striker. And I think the reason for that is, connecting this back to John, he doesn't just throw numbers forward the same way I think some coaches do. I'm going to, again, harken back to a different uh, Twitter user and mutual friend of a lot of, a lot of the people here. Ashwin Rahman uh, on Twitter many years ago talked about how certain coaches were using, rather than sort of like how Pep was playing a few years ago, where he had like seven players forward, both fullbacks uh, 
like high up against the opposite, like up against the touchline. Instead, certain teams were overloading one side and then, you know, putting a ton of players on one side, but then using the, the extra players in rest defense rather than overloading the other side as well. And then using the overload on the one side to create a crossing opportunity, get the ball into the box. Another coach, I think he pointed out doing that was Bordalis, which is all a very long way of saying, uh, I think this actually has defensive implications too. And again, this isn't like we're getting Harry Kane or somebody who's like an incredible player. He has limitations, but I think the archetype creates a lot of options. Um, so even if he doesn't bag 20 goals, which he's not going to, if he scores six and otherwise does the positional stuff and the out-of-possession stuff that I expect him to, I really think this is a good a good transfer. I'm going to wind back. You talked a lot about final third stuff there. Um, but earlier you talked about how you think a signing like this could completely change how United play from the back. Do you want to, do you want to go a little bit in more detail about that point? I think I, I understand, but just to explain for everyone else, what sure. you mean by that. So when you have a player who's as physically disruptive as he is as, you know, Sebastian Haller was at Ajax, even though I, I don't even think that highly of him as a player, but you name it, big strikers, the thing that they allow you to do is to put fewer players in the box in certain situations and still have the same box threat, which allows you to have more players outside of the box to create overloads in attacking situations, which allows you to have more players in rest defense. It allows you to completely reassemble how you attack and as a result, how you defend, uh, which sort of has been a theme of this particular episode. Yeah, and, and then you, you can even get into how it might allow us to have more of a focal point playing out from the back in earlier phases. Um, I think he's a player that you can play off of. You can play the ball to feet to him. He'll turn and he'll he's technically clean enough to play somebody else in or play it laterally and allow us to, you know, maintain possession better. What I don't think he's going to do is be like a Giroud type player where you're going to thump the ball to him and he's just going to fight off three guys and hold the ball up indefinitely on his own. Um, I think he's not so comfortable with players on his back, but I still think there's a lot to like here. Awesome. Uh, let me end off with one more question, and this is open-ended, so any, anyone can take it. We spoke early on in Section 2, which was build-up, about how these improvements under Ten Hag are part of the system and part of the project that is being built. And then after that, we went on to list you know, a number of prominent individual players who have played a role in us being better at building up and breaking down opposition teams. And I think... For us, that makes a lot of sense, but I think a lot of people who are perhaps potentially doubtful would say, you know, how is this not individuals being impactful as opposed to a systemic improvement? And to some extent, I agree, right? I guess my question is, how do we know that the improvements that are being made are system-based and not just individuals getting better uh, and United basically putting out better starting 11s than they were putting out last season, which I do think is a is somewhat of a factor in this. I guess the, the obvious example for me is the other team in Manchester right now where everyone's having this debate about whether or not Erling Haaland has made them worse as a team since he's arrived. Now, there's a lot to get into that and in, in, into there with that topic, and I don't particularly want to, but it it's always the case that when anything like this happens people are always going to fascinate on like one aspect all the time right um so so for example manchester city played against um chelsea twice in the same week in one game they played with a with a 325 structure in the other game they played in a 424 structure without holland um they also didn't play a lot of other players. For example, they didn't play Ilkay Gundogan. They played Phil Foden instead in that more central position. Um, but people will come out of that and say, look, here's an example of a game where Holland did play in one, they struggled a little bit, didn't play in the other, and they didn't struggle. And I think that's it's always the, 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 the case that there are lots of layers as to what's going on. 
um, in any sort of um, situation like this that you can't just simply point at individuals and say, well, this player wasn't there before, now they're there, ergo, post hoc, ergo, prop to hoc. Um, I, I, I think in this situation... It's it's obvious that the benefits that are, are happening now are because of Eric Ten Hag to me. Now, obviously, I'm tactics pilled or whatever, but I started off this podcast talking about the base level that he gets you to in order to then get the most out of your players. We've talked a lot about, for example, uh, Marcus Rashford. Now, Marcus Rashford, like regardless of what you think about uh, about Marcus Rashford, it's undeniable that this is the best form he's been in for two or three years now right or a, a long Ever. time a but long yeah. time um how much of that is down to marcus rashford suddenly just being brilliant how, or how much it, we talked about decision making right decision decision making is a really interesting one in this respect too when we talk about decision making are we saying this player suddenly developed the ability to make better decisions or are we saying this player is now playing in a structure and system that allows him to know what to do in certain situations um and I think that, that, that you know, there's there, there's an overlap between the two. There will be situations where you can argue, as as Maram and Case have done, that what's happened here is that with a good coach behind him, Eric Ten Hag has been able to make Marcus Rashford be able to use his body better in certain situations, right? Pep Guardiola does that. There's plenty of players who have been improved by by Pep at that level. But at the same time, the stru- the system does help as well. Um, having the repeatability, as as Maram called it, is is so important because when you know what the structures are, you know where everyone else is at, and then you start getting these socio-effective benefits that Case was talking about as well. So, yeah, like let's not deny that what's happened here is individuals have helped Manchester United get better, but those individuals have been brought in to play in a structure and a system that takes time to get to the level that it needs to get to, and everything has just coalesced together for me to to allow those sorts of improvements to happen. So do I think that Manchester United are better now because Casemiro plays for them? No, not, not, not just that reason, but it's part of them. It's part of the reasons why Manchester United are better. Um, do I think that Manchester United are better because Marcus Rashford is fit at the moment? No, but it's part of the reasons why Manchester United are better. Um, and so whenever you're assessing these sorts of things, it's always about, you know, accepting that there's many layers there's many inputs here and I think for me the overall difference that makes the the, the biggest change is Eric Ten Hag um, and it's it's impressive what he's done and I guess as Manchester United fans who's watched it all the way through you maybe lose the wood for the trees at some points but for, for someone like myself who is I'm not going to say neutral because I'm a Leeds United fan um, but this is one of the worst things to have happened uh, to 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 Leeds <laughs> to Leeds fans in recent seasons, right? Because for for years it was you know we knew that Manchester United were the gift that kept on giving, uh, and Eric Ten Hag has turned that around. Now they have that base level; you can build on that. And um, yeah, it's terrible. Never invite <laughs> me back up. on the podcast, listeners. <laughs> listen, if anyone if anyone is still paying attention, I want you to. The time stamp it. No, I'm kidding. Okay. I think we're on one. But Rodri is better than Casemiro. Let's just get that. So clip okay. Cut. Trim that part. So uh, in, there's a tool called Audacity. And you can, okay. I, think, um, I think you can even go as far as saying as a system is su- successful when you have individuals like this that are able to shine as a result of it. So Marcus Rashford is scoring a lot of goals. It's not just because Marcus Rashford is very good, but it's because he has a structure around them that's able to get the better of him, that's, and that's on and off the pitch. Um, so it isn't always about what's happening on the ball and what's happening off it, um, but it's also about stuff, little stuff like the dressing room, the infrastructure of the club. Um, and we've seen how um, mood and aura and um, players can change circumstances and change the way that players approach the game. But um, your structure is successful when it's able to let players like Marcus Rashford do what they can do the best way possible and by bringing everybody around them upwards. So it isn't just about making one forward look best, but it's about making the whole, the entire cog in the machine um, effective and repeatable, but also dynamic. And there's a balance to strike there um, in terms of the opposition, in terms of um, the personnel you have. Um, I think it is, to be honest, I would say that this is um, a side that looks much more improved than I would have expected at the time frame that Ten Hag 
um, has had. I think you can summarize everything we've just said there with Ben Torveny's phrase, quality is an emergent property. Um, now it sounds very complicated and philosophical, but what, what he means by that is that players don't have intrinsic qualities that just are there or not. Sometimes you need to have the, the context in place for those properties to emerge. Uh, and I think that's what we're seeing with Manchester United now. The context is right. And so those qualities can emerge from the players. Yeah, and I would play off that and say it goes in the opposite, the other direction as well. Um, I definitely agree with you. I think the difference has been the system here and the coaching. Uh, but a big part of, at least at the highest level, managing these huge clubs is knowing which players will do the things that you theoretically want players in those positions to do. Um, and this, like, people have been on, all over Anthony recently. I think if you take Anthony out of this team, it's a much, much, much worse team. And I think all of the decision makers at United would agree with me on that. And it's because there's an idea of what a right winger looks like for this in this system. And not only does the system potentially get the most out of Anthony, Anthony gets the most out of the system. Um, and then as for Rashford, whether or not his decision-making is better or not, if you put him in just more advantageous, more advantageous situations, he's going to execute at a, you know, his, his perceived impact when he's playing and playing well is going to be higher. And so we're going to question his decision-making less, um, which is an interesting dynamic, I think, as people who analyze the game, because it creates these questions like the ones we've been talking about today, like how much better is he actually versus how much better is the, is the environment? I think probably like you both have said, the answer is somewhere in between. Uh, and that's what good coaching does. Yeah. And I think as uh, I agree with everything you guys have said, and I, I think one thing that's really easy to get caught up in uh, is as people who mainly talk about United, a lot of what we talk about is from the perspective of a team that is very big and has a lot of financial resources. And as such, we talk about these coaches who come in with these big idealistic plans. Like I think every week on this podcast, City comes up in some extent because, you know, City have all of these resources and all of this money. And so that they, so they can essentially present Pep a blank canvas upon which he can paint whatever pattern he wants. Right. But the vast majority of football teams do not have that reality. Um, and I think we've seen that with United this season. Ten Hag has been presented with challenges where he cannot actually do everything that he might want to do with unlimited resources and infinite time, right? And to me, what I would say is it's not only about this system that he brings in, which I think is important, of course, and it gives you an overarching principle to build towards, but it's also about pragmatically his ability to look at the side he has and build something that plays to its strengths and mitigates its weaknesses. So, you know, playing to its strengths in terms of getting the best players to do what they're good at consistently, but also looking at what some players can't do and being able to build a system where United are still competitive without being able to do those things. And I think what's interesting over time, as we've said time and time again, is the fact that over time, we're going to hopefully move closer towards a vision of what is supposed to be there. But in the meantime, United still need to be competitive as a football team and get results. And I think that level of pragmatism and, uh, and working towards a clearer goal is what for me signifies this as a managerial improvement versus just a personnel improvement. And with that, this has been one of the best hours ever. Like this has been so awesome. So I just want to say, I mean, I would tell John and Muram to tell you where you can follow them, but instead, I'm pretty sure all of you already follow them. So I'm going to tell them thanks for coming on the podcast and, you know, tell everyone where they can subscribe to Devils in the Details, guys. Cause, you know, you're famous and we're yeah, we're 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 a small um as case implied before, we are the working man's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I've been quoted out of context. 
<laughs> but yes, yeah. Thank you guys so much. Um, I really appreciate it. I hope you guys like being on here. I think we'd love to have both of you back. Uh, John, you've already, this is your second time. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I think John hopefully made some peace with the United fans here. <laughs> Not likely. Look, it's, it's, it's half half 12 at night, and I've jumped onto a Manchester United podcast to talk about Manchester United to you guys. That That is a real indication of how much you two mean to me. So thanks for having me on. Thank you as well. Yeah, it was great. Um, also half 12, also very tired. She doesn't tired. like you. Hey! She doesn't like you as much as I do. um but yeah this was awesome um i was really tired now i'm extremely awake so thank you (laughs) good and with that we'll see you guys next week hope you enjoyed this week's devils in the details you can follow us at devils itd pod on twitter or on a variety of streaming platforms Our awesome theme music was made by Jacob Connor. You can find at Jacob J. Connor on Twitter. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.